The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every town has a dark side. Today we head to Orlando, Florida, where we check out Jennifer Kessie's mysterious disappearance and the search that continues even after 15 years. Life can be so many things in so many ways. It can be beautiful at times or utterly unfair strange and mysterious, or bland and mundane. There are ups and downs no matter how you cut it. And just at the moment when the stars and the moon have aligned, and everything you've dreamt of seems to be happening, a simple, metaphorical gust of wind can come through and will sweep them all away. Such was the case with the close-knit family and boyfriend of Jennifer Kessie when she abruptly vanished without a trace in Orlando, Florida at the start of 2006. This incident cut short her wonderful young life and threw into oblivion a very promising future. Now, 15 years later, the details about Jennifer's mysterious disappearance remain sketchy, but her family still remains more determined than ever to uncover the truth. Hi everyone, I'm Andrew Fitzgerald and welcome to a new episode of Everytown. This week's podcast underscores one harsh reality of life that some people have been confronted with. 
The world may serve the best on a silver platter, but no matter who you are, without rhyme or reason, it can all be gone in the blink of an eye. The different areas in Jennifer Kessie's life were definitely on an upswing even before she hit her mid-twenties. It was almost too ideal, making some wonder if such a life was even real. Then Jennifer disappeared in 2006. Alas, life is never perfect and may not provide all the answers to our questions. It's 2021 now, and the Kessie family still asks, what really happened to Jennifer? On the morning of Tuesday, January 24, 2006, 24-year-old Jennifer was in a rush to report to work at 8 a.m. as a finance manager at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Ocoee, a city in Orange County, Florida. So it was typical that the Young Professionals Unit at the Millennium Condominium Complex on Conroy Road in Orlando was left in a bit of disarray by its resident eager to jumpstart her workday. The shower still had puddles of water, while the damp hand towel was draped over the side of the sink. Hair and makeup products were scattered across the counter, and on her unmade bed was a selection of work clothes. Then, Jennifer left, not forgetting to lock her unit's door. However, she never reached her workplace. And then, just like that, the young, accomplished woman vanished. And it started a mystery that has lingered for 15 years. But why would Jennifer be a person of interest at least to an unknown person who wanted her disconnected from the world. Was she a random victim, or did she fall prey to someone's uncontainable envy? After all, Jennifer could have been the poster girl of the lady who almost had everything. For one, she belonged to a happy, cohesive family that provided her and her siblings a comfortable life. Jennifer was the eldest daughter of Drew and Joyce Kessie, born on May 20th, 1981, and a sister to her younger brother Logan, who was also her best friend. When they reached their 20s, their bond grew, and their social circles merged. Jennifer was always very supportive of Logan's love for soccer, and came to watch every single one of his matches. The elder Kessie child was as close to her parents, too, as attested by her dad, Dave, who said, We were a close-knit family, always in contact with each other. There's really nothing Jen wouldn't tell us. The only thing the father hadn't known about his daughter was her quarter-sized shamrock tattoo on the left side of her buttocks, which Jennifer had only told her mom, Joyce, about. Aside from that, The girl was distinguished for having green eyes that may appear blue depending on her clothing, blonde hair, a birthmark on the middle finger of her left hand, a non-raised faded strawberry birthmark on her ribs, a cleft in her chin, and surgical scars on the inside of her left elbow. 
Most of all, Jennifer was liked and loved by family and friends for being an intelligent, adventurous spirit who always wore a smile on her lovely face. But there was more to Jennifer that had made her the target of someone else's desire or perhaps anger. A source of pride for her family, Jennifer proved that having a good education was a ticket to an impending bright future. After finishing high school at Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida, she attended the University of Central Florida in Orlando and graduated in 2003 with a degree in finance. Afterward, Jennifer got employed by Westgate Resorts, an American timeshare resort company founded in 1982, which was expanded to 29 locations across the U.S., Her brilliance qualified her for promotion twice within a year, becoming the company's youngest employee to become finance manager. This enabled her to be financially independent, and in November of 2005, she purchased her first condominium unit in Orlando. And who says a budding career is a thorn to having a rosy love life? Definitely not Jennifer. She had the best of both worlds as she happily maintained a committed, albeit long-distance relationship with her boyfriend, Rob Allen, who was based in Fort Lauderdale, a city on Florida's southeastern coast known for its beaches and boating canals. The lovers had met in a bar in January of 05 when Rob attended a trade show in Orlando. They hit it off instantly kept communicating multiple times a day, and eventually romance blossomed. Rob said, We had an incredible relationship. It was long distance, but we made it work. When you find that instant connection with someone, you find a way to make it work. He loved Jennifer's spontaneity and sense of adventure, on top of being beautiful, independent, confident, responsible, and loyal. She was up for anything and willing to travel anywhere and try new things, Rob had said of his girlfriend. So between meeting each other in January of 05 until Jennifer disappeared in 06, the couple traveled for six hours back and forth between Orlando and Fort Lauderdale to see each other. Taking a vacation outside of Florida was part of their bucket list as well. In fact, the weekend before Jennifer's disappearance, she was with Rob for a romantic getaway on the island of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. They returned to Florida on Sunday, January 22, 2006, and Jennifer spent the night in Rob's Fort Lauderdale home. While she was away, her brother Logan and his friends Travis and Matt stayed in Jennifer's condo unit The following day was a manic Monday for Jennifer as she drove straight to work in a Coey from Rob's place. Hardworking as she was, she left work at around 6 p.m. that day 
and still had the energy to do her daily routine of calling up her parents and brother while driving the 12-mile stretch home. She also talked to a few friends when she retired in her condo unit just before 10 that evening. Jennifer spent time talking with Rob on the phone while curled up in her bed. Their long-distance arrangement could at times spark a lover's petty quarrel, and that night was not spared. They struggled being apart from each other, but neither one wanted to relocate. Rob described his phone conversation with Jennifer, saying, It had been a long day, coming back from the Caribbean, and we were both tired. We had a bit of a disagreement, and she wanted assurance that I loved her, and to make sure I was in it for the long haul. Just normal relationship things, but everything was fine. While on the phone, there was a knock at the door, and Jennifer looked out of the peephole. It was her upstairs neighbor, but Jennifer didn't answer the door. The couple then said their goodbyes and hung up, and that would be the last time anyone had heard from Jennifer. The next day, the woman who seemed to have everything was simply gone. Constant communication kept the relationship of Jennifer and Rob going strong, so texting and calling each other became their routine. An early riser, she developed the habit of messaging her boyfriend before leaving for work in the morning. At times, her calls would be Rob's alarm to rise and shine, but on that particular January 24th, 2006 morning, there was silence from Jennifer's end. Rob neither received a text or call from her, so he tried to call Jennifer as he rushed to work between 8 and 9 a.m. But his call went straight to her voicemail, which he thought was on. When Rob's 9 a.m. meeting had ended, he tried to call Jennifer again, and this time to tell her about something that had happened in the meeting. Jen was a great sounding board. She was the first person I'd go to when I needed advice. Or just when I wanted to tell her something interesting or funny, Rob said. But that day, his calls and texts to Jennifer were unanswered. By lunchtime, he began to worry, but initially refused to think that something really bad happened to his girlfriend. Jen's colleagues were also upset when she didn't show up for an important meeting that morning, which was very uncharacteristic of her. Her work ethic and professionalism were untainted, so it was a cause of concern for her employer, her father's friend, who immediately informed Drew Kessie. Jennifer's dad knew right away that something had gone awry. He reacted... It's not like her to not show up for work. She's the most responsible person I know. If she knew she would be five minutes late for work, she would call them. That's just who she is. Her parents' calls and texts also fell on deaf ears. And for Joyce, it was the first time that her call to her daughter went straight to voicemail. 
Her motherly instinct told her instantly that Jennifer was in trouble. So, together with her son Logan and his pal Travis and Drew, she drove them from their hometown in Bradenton, Florida, to Jennifer's condo in Orlando. On the way, Drew contacted the condo's property manager to check on Jennifer, and he stated that her 2004 Chevy Malibu car was not in its assigned parking spot. Concerned that Jennifer may have met an accident, Drew started calling hospitals in the area, but Jennifer wasn't at any. Two hours later, they reached the condominium complex where Jennifer moved in two months earlier despite ongoing renovations and construction. Only a few units were occupied, and the unfinished ones were used as quarters by the construction workers who were staying in the U.S. illegally. Nothing was unusual inside Jennifer's condo, except for her messy bedroom and bathroom where she got ready for work that day. Her luggage from the Caribbean trip over the weekend was still untouched and in the front hall. There were no signs of forced entry or struggle. Logan also searched the unfinished and unlocked condo across Jennifer's, but didn't find his sister there. The Kessie family then notified the Orange County Sheriff's Department and the Orlando PD. The authorities then arrived on the scene, but Drew noticed they didn't seem overly concerned because Jennifer was an adult and could have left on her own. Detectives checked for activity on Jennifer's ATM card and pinged her cell phone, but found no information. Considering the scene at Jennifer's condo, authorities surmised that she had most likely been abducted while walking to her car from her unit or on her way to work. Rob then, together with his mother, drove up from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando to help in the search for his missing girlfriend. He was reminded by his father that as Jennifer's boyfriend, he would be a suspect. He said, But I knew I had nothing to hide. I can't even imagine how horrific of a person you have to be to abduct someone or harm someone. I just knew I had to get to Jen right away. However, Rob and Jennifer's family were all ruled out as suspects right away, according to the family's legal team and private investigator, Mike Toretta. Even Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Matt, who was still upset about their breakup, was questioned, but he was also let off the hook. The Kessie family believed Matt had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and they still maintained a cordial relationship. By the late afternoon on that day, Jennifer's family and friends were standing at an intersection near her condo building, holding a large flyer with her picture and giving out flyers about her disappearance. As the investigation began, Rob camped out on the couch at Jennifer's condo, where her parents also stayed in an effort to make a statement that finding their daughter was the number one priority. Authorities started out their investigation of people closest to Jennifer's vicinity. 
it was the construction workers and day laborers who were part of the ongoing renovations at the Millennium Condominium Complex. Jennifer had confided to her parents that she felt uncomfortable that the workers were allowed to stay in the unfinished condo units. There were instances where the non-English-speaking workers would just stop and stare at her, even whistling and catcalling. Friends told her to report it to the building manager if they harassed her, but thankfully, it never reached that point. Jennifer had also expressed to Rob that she felt uncomfortable at times and wasn't thrilled living alone. She always said that she felt safe with me, so I feel emasculated that I wasn't there to protect her, to save her, he said. Police had a hard time questioning the construction workers because most of them were undocumented and hard to trace. Allegedly, the day after her disappearance, most of them left the site. Then, on January 26, two days after Jennifer had vanished, investigators found a big lead in the case. After watching the news, a resident of the Huntington on the Green Condominiums located about one and a half miles from Jennifer's place reported seeing a black Chevy Malibu that matched the description of Jennifer's car. Authorities arrived and confirmed the car was hers, but there was no evidence reported due to the absence of blood, DNA, or hair samples in the car. The only forensic evidence gathered was a latent print and a small DNA fiber. It was also noted that the driver's seat was pushed all the way back. Found inside her vehicle were a DVD player given by Rob, flip-flops, a car charger, an exercise ball, and her mail key. However, Jennifer's purse, cell phone, and iPod were missing. The police didn't believe, though, that robbery was a motive. Moreover, authorities investigated the area around Jennifer's car and brought in a bloodhound. They tracked the scent in the driver's seat directly to the rear stairwell of Jennifer's unit near a pond before losing the trace. That area was searched by dogs and people on horseback, but nothing was found. Then everyone became optimistic when a surveillance footage obtained by Orlando PD showed an unidentified person walking in the parking lot at the same time Jennifer's car was left in the lot. 12 p.m. on Tuesday, January 24th. The unidentified individual would become a person of interest, but the optimism of the investigators and Jennifer's family turned into frustration. The camera was programmed to take pictures every three seconds, and unfortunately, in each frame, the suspect's face was obstructed by a gatepost. Thus, this suspect without a face was also the luckiest person of interest ever. The FBI detectives were unable to determine if the individual was a man or a woman. The only thing they did know was that the suspect was between 5'3 and 5'5". That person is key, Toretta said. If we know who he or she is, we can find out where Jennifer is. Unfortunately, no one could identify the suspect at all. 
condominium complex's landscaping company. It was also a question, but they couldn't recall seeing Jennifer's car in the parking lot. Neither could the security guard at the entrance gate. Police also questioned Jennifer's co-workers and took her office computer for a forensics investigation. It was found out that one of the managers, Johnny Campos, had romantic feelings for Jennifer, which she didn't reciprocate because she detested workplace relationships, plus she was already committed to Rob. Campos was also late to work the day Jennifer disappeared, allegedly because of a speeding ticket. Records showed, however, that he received that ticket a week earlier. Unfortunately, it didn't result to something substantial. In May of 2007, Jennifer's boss, David Siegel, put up a million-dollar reward for Jennifer's safe return with an expiration date of July 4th, but nothing ever came from that as well. It seemed that the investigation on Jennifer's disappearance had gone kaput. But her family had been her staunchest advocates, even spending their life savings to search for her relentlessly. Cassie family organized volunteers to pass out flyers and spoke on local and national TV. They generated thousands of leads and tips, but the ultimate tip has still not come through. On May 2nd, 2008, Drew and Joyce Kessie and the parents of Tiffany Sessions, who was a woman that went missing in Tampa back in 1989, had the Jennifer Kessie and Tiffany Sessions Missing Person Act passed. The bill aimed to achieve reform in the way that adult missing persons cases are dealt with in Florida. The MBI took over Jennifer's case then in June of 2010, but handed it back to the Orlando police in February of 2011 after reviewing the evidence and giving their recommendations. For years, the police investigated tips, planned searches, brought in other agencies, but they've never even named a suspect, identified the person on the surveillance video, nor found a sign of where Jennifer could be or what happened to her. Yet, Orlando PD refuses to classify Jennifer's case as cold. But it wasn't enough for the Kessie family, and they were disappointed with how the case was handled. So on October 2nd, 2017, they retained a law firm to file a public records request with the OPD for all the information related to Jennifer's disappearance. On December 10, 2018, Drew and Joyce filed a lawsuit against the OPD, asking for the release of the information without redaction and to reimburse the family for all costs related to their repeated record requests. The civil complaint alleged that OPD had breached its obligation to comply with Florida and Orange County records law and continued to call the case active despite having any new leads. Jennifer's dad said, On every level, Jen's case has been a challenge. There is no law enforcement working on my daughter's case. It's all me and my family. And 
that's not how it should be. In the years since, Jennifer vanished. Rob has since gotten married and now has two children, but is still treated like a son by Jennifer's family. The Kessie family settled the lawsuit for $18,648.24 on March 21st, 2019, in exchange of getting the entire complete records comprising of 14,000 pages of electronic files and dozens of hours of videos. It was there that they found a seven-year gap that occurred between 2012 and 2019 in the case files where nothing had been done or was investigated. The ball was finally now in their hands and Jennifer's family had the authority and freedom to shoot it in any direction where truth and justice awaited them. On November 8, 2019, Kessie family investigator Mike Toretta discovered deep in the files about a woman who witnessed something strange at Lake Fisher in Orange County on the day Jennifer vanished. When reached by Toretta, she recalled seeing a man driving a pickup truck to the lake, then taking out what appeared to be a six to eight foot piece of rolled up carpet and dumping it in the lake while watching it sink. Private investigative teams searched the area for three days, but came up empty-handed. This was another blow for Jennifer's family, but they promised they would never stop searching for their daughter or for answers. This has taken everything out of us, emotionally and financially, Drew said, while an emotional Joyce asked rhetorically, how do you decide as a parent when the right time is to give up on the search for your child. You don't. So that's it for this week's episode of Every Town. Thanks for tuning in. And come back next week for another episode filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because who knows? Maybe your town will be next. Next.